0: You already have your Bibles open, don't you? So I don't have to say open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. As we move now into the last six verses of this chapter, Luke is going to take us into the early life of the church. He takes us past her birthday... On Pentecost and into the days and the weeks and I don't know, maybe even the months that followed as her now 3,120 charter members met together and grew deep and wide. You know that song we teach to our children, deep and wide, deep and wide. That's exactly how the church grew, deep in knowledge and wide in number in the city that had killed the Savior of the world, the first local assembly of believers of the entire church age met together daily. Not just on Tuesday mornings or Sunday mornings. They met together daily and delightedly. And every one of them was Jewish, if not by birth, at least by way of complete acceptance of Judaism. Judaism. Any Gentiles who may have been included in those 3,000 added to the church were seen by the other Jews as first having willingly become Jews. Proselytes, as it says in Acts 2.10. You do know that there were believers in other parts of the world, in other parts of the uh, nation of Israel. Well, even other, some other countries. Um, they weren't all there in Jerusalem. There were, we know, at least 500 up in Galilee who had seen the resurrected Lord at one time. And that was not at his ascension on the Mount of Olives. It was up in Galilee, and we gave you the reasons for that. So there were believers in Galilee. There were also believers in Samaria. Remember the woman at the well in the whole town of Sychar that got saved? There were also believers in the Gadarenes. The crude, rude dude in the nude from the Gadarenes. He went out and witnessed to a bunch of people. There were believers in the Gadarenes. There were believers in Tyre and Sidon. The Syrophoenician woman was up there. She was the only woman Jesus had ever said. She had great faith. There were believers in Decapolis. So there were other believers. They weren't all here. But the church, the first church, the first local assembly was 3,120, and it was in Jerusalem. So the church was now born. We're past her birthday. And we ask now the question, what was she like? What was the early church like in her character? Well, the most compact description that we have of early church life is found in these six verses Acts 2 42 to 47. You know, it's from the New Testament epistles, particularly the book of Ephesians, that we learn about the doctrinal purity of the church and what the church should look like in her doctrinal purity. But the best example of her historical purity is found in these last verses of Acts chapter 2. Now, you do all know, I'm sure you know, that the church is not a building. I mean, we call going to church, but the church itself is not a building. She is a living organism. Because she's made up of living souls, living stones, Peter calls us. Looking at the church, the early church, is like looking at a picture of an infant. She's just been born. She's definitely an infant. And comparing that picture of her as an infant with another portrait of the same individual in his her old age. And the church today is definitely in her old age. She's getting ready to go home to be with her Lord. 2000 she's 2000 years old today, the church. I guess you could call that old age, right Catherine? Yeah. You're just you're just a baby chick compared to the <laughs> Now, when you look at the picture of the aged individual, let's say you have a picture of uh, yourself as an infant and then yourself today. Okay, You look at the difference, and I'm talking about those of you who are older, up there in years. When you look there at the aged individual, you see someone who has experienced the reality of living in a sin-cursed world. Hopefully, you look at the face of someone who has gained a lot of knowledge and wisdom along the way. Hopefully, right? (laughs) You've learned a thing or two. A person marked with the lines that we don't like, called wrinkles. Lines that come with the trials and the troubles and life's disappointments. And I'm talking about Christians now, um, perhaps even having suffered persecution for righteousness' sake. One who has come to understand the tragedies that sin has brought into this world. One who has had to stand by the graveside of loved ones and dear friends. But in contrast, the picture of the same person as an infant shows no worry lines... (laughs) no wrinkles, no gray hairs or white hairs, maybe even no hairs at all. (laughs) Some babies are bald. (laughs) To look at that sweet little face is refreshing and endearing because he or she is so sunny and bright and carefree and full of optimism and hope and, you know, life. Don't you love looking into the face of a newborn? They just you just can't help but smile when you look at even well maybe not if they're crying you know but <laughs> the church in the days and the weeks and the months following Pentecost had that kind of refreshing attraction and innocent beauty she had an invigoration and a vibrancy yet unaffected by the wrinkles and the scars and the graying that comes from troubles and trials and persecution. She was yet a little bit naive about what lay ahead. Just like the freshness and wonder and the purity of a newborn infant, the newborn church consisted of leaders who had a very vivid remembrance of Jesus who had so recently walked with them. They had been taught directly by him. They had also seen his miracles firsthand and likewise had seen him in his resurrected body. All the 120 had seen him resurrected. They also anticipated his soon return. You know that. They had no idea whatsoever that it would be at least 2,000 years before he came back to establish his kingdom. So, although the early church may have been inexperienced, the church today is much more mature than she was then. But we're still we're lacking some things that she definitely had. She might have been naive in certain areas, yet she was a model church in spirit. She was spirit-filled. So, what we see of her is what ought to be true of the church and individual believers throughout the church, church age. In Acts 2, 42 to 47, Luke gives us a very brief, only six verses, very brief, but profound, powerfully rich portrait of the early church. So our outline begins with desired characteristics of the surrendered early church. And first of all, we're just going to read verse 42. Don't panic. Most of the lesson this morning is going to be on this one verse. So let's look at verse 42. This is after they were baptized uh, and 3,000 were added to the church. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. In just one verse, the Spirit, through Luke, tells us of four continuous steadfast practices of these early believers. They engaged in them diligently, steadfast, and willingly, because these were the natural result of being filled with the Spirit. These were some activities that must continue Today, in the 21st century, if we as a church are going to be effective in two things, scriptural wisdom, which always comes first, and then soul winning. Do you want to be deep and wide? Scriptural wisdom and soul winning. It's no accident at all that the very first thing that is mentioned regarding the activities of the early church is that she was seriously steadfast in her study of apostolic doctrine. The Lord Jesus had promised his apostles that when the Holy Spirit came, that he, the Spirit, would teach them all things and recall to their remembrance whatever things that Jesus had taught them that they had forgotten. Do you forget a lot of what you hear when you come Tuesdays or when you go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays? Yeah, we forget most of it, don't we? So we need the Holy Spirit to recall things to remembrance, especially these apostles did, for they're the foundation of the church. The Lord also had commissioned them to teach all things whatsoever I commanded you. So for the rest of their lives, they were obedient to that call, and they began right away, which was evidenced not only by Peter's sermon— but also by this verse, verse 42 here. You know, sometimes people get so wrapped up in their experience with the Spirit that they minimize and they underestimate the need for systematic instruction in biblical doctrine. I have heard people say, I don't need to study. I'll just get up there in front of people and the Spirit will guide me. No, no, no. The Lord wants us to be in apostolic doctrine studying the scripture by the way the whole new testament is apostolic doctrine because it was either written by an apostle or definitely all approved by the apostles and the apostles doctrine is actually whose doctrine did they come up with it on their own no it's really christ's doctrine God's doctrine. Now these early believers we know were filled with the spirit and yet they had this great necessity to be taught by these special men that the Lord had chosen to equip them so that they in turn could return to their respective homes and countries and communities and rightly instruct others. Paul writing to young Timothy, said these words, The things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You know, the church, unlike much of the church today, the church was never intended to be a spectator organization. A lot of times you feel almost like you're going to a theater. You know, the, everybody's out there and then you've got all the uh, the the actors up on the platform. The church was never intended to be a social club. There are a lot of churches where it's just like going to a country club. The church was not intended intended to be an entertainment center. The church is intended to be a reproductive teaching center where faithful men and women are taught sound doctrine and then... Teach others so that together they can all worship the Lord God in spirit and what else? And in truth. What were the apostles teaching these people, do you suppose? Well, obviously, they were teaching them in everything that Jesus had taught them. Jesus came to reveal his father, so they were teaching the people all about God. And they would be teaching the people the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that all pointed to Christ. Remember how he opened up the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms and showed them how he was in all of it? They would be doing the same thing. They were telling these devout Jews from many other lands about the miraculous conception of Jesus. Think of that. Not the birth. You know, Mary gave natural birth. But it was the conception that was miraculous, wasn't it? Because Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, not of Joseph. Who was there? Who was among the 120? We know for sure because the scripture told us. Mary. Don't you? And you know who was also there? Luke and Matthew. Who wrote the accounts, you know, of the, the Lord's conception and birth. They were there. And Mary, I am sure, shared with everyone the entire account. The Lord's half-brothers and half-sisters and first cousins, James and John, likely told... And Salome, his aunt, she was there. His mom was there. They likely told these people about the Lord's early childhood and his adolescent years. And those mysterious years that we don't know anything about between the time he was 12 and 30. They told him all about that. And how he was so perfect. Annoyingly perfect, if you were a brother or a sister. The apostles could tell the people all about the three and a half years of the Lord's public ministry. And what they collectively, I mean, what they individually forgot, the spirit, well, let's say Peter was talking and he didn't remember this. You know, Andrew could say, oh, don't you remember when such and such happened? Or John said, well, remember this? Remember, you know, collectively, they probably remembered a whole lot. But what they collectively forgot, the spirit would recall to their remembrance, it would take the apostles a while, I don't know how long, months, weeks, well, I'm sure more than days, more than weeks, months, I don't, it could have been up to a year. It took us ten and a half years <laughs> to share what they had knew and what they had gained in scriptural knowledge about Christ, but they had an advantage over us. We only met once a week. It took us ten and a half years. And then we had Christmas break. We had resurrection break. We have summer breaks. These people were meeting together how often? Not only daily, but all day long. Even when they shared meals together, they were learning, learning, learning everything that they, I mean, they were just like sponges soaking it all up. They were like newborn babes. What does a baby want more than anything? Milk. Milk. As newborn babes, they desired the milk of the word that they might grow thereby. The thing that they committed themselves to was doctrine, learning, being instructed. They didn't dedicate themselves to emotions and to feelings, but to doctrine. How is it that we grow in Christ likeness? How are we transformed? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. A lot of work. Put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. We must have the right food in order to produce the right fruit. These men were feeding the sheep. Isn't that what the Lord had told them to do in John 21? Feed my sheep. If you really love me, what will you do? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. They got it. They're feeding the sheep. The first key characteristic of this model church is that they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, which was really the doctrine of Christ. What was the Lord's great commission? Wasn't it to go into all the world and make disciples? Wasn't it to teach? Paul told young Timothy something else. He said, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, Paul said. Preach the word. When? In season, out of season. We should have been here during the inclement weather. Out of season two. (laughs) Exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come, Paul said, when men will not endure sound doctrine. Do you think that time has come? If we do not teach people the truth, they don't know when error has entered in. And there are so many out there who have let error enter in. Any shepherd who does not teach the truth to his sheep is not protecting them. He's not encouraging them in Christ's likeness. Because people cannot function on what they do not know. And that's why we're in the days of Laodicea. One of the first verses I ever memorized is a sad one. But I have it always in front of me. It's Hosea 4, 6. My people, and God was talking about his people. My people are destroyed for what? A lack of knowledge. And that's what we see today in the church. A lack of knowledge. The second spirit-filled character, and I could go on in that because that's my heartbeat, Okay. Feeding the sheep, teaching, learning, ever learning. I feel like it's a wasted day if I don't learn some new nugget of truth from God's Word. I really do. The second spirit filled characteristic of the early believers that's mentioned in this verse is that they continued steadfast in what? Fellowship. And that doesn't mean they went out with their friends to get a Dunkin' Donut, <laughs> they didn't have Dunkin' Donuts, and they didn't even have Krispy Kreme. In having publicly identified themselves with Christ by baptism, these people had cut themselves off from their historic Judaism. And they also endangered themselves by identifying with one that their religious rulers had hatefully crucified just 53 days earlier. Now, here's something you might not ever have thought about before, but in the first sense of its meaning, fellowship, is a positional word. Positional. Now the Greek word is koinonia. You've all probably heard that before. It speaks of having something in common. It's like a partnership, actually. Now, did you know that the word koinonia does not appear at all in the four Gospels? Never. Never. Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will never find the word koinonia, fellowship. The very first time that word appears is Acts 2.42. Why is that? Well, positionally speaking, nobody before the church was born no, and, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, nobody before that had true partnership with God. Fellowship with God. However, by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, believers now actually become partners with God. We have something in common with him because we are in him and he is in us. God's spirit indwells us. At the same time, every believer also has koinonia, partnership, fellowship with every other born-again Christian. And what is our commonality? Christ, the Holy Spirit, too. This is God, you know, God in us. This is positional. It can never change. 1 John 1, 3 says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Koinonia. And our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So if, when we talk about, you know, and we do this, when we talk about being out of fellowship, in the purest sense of our position in Christ, our position in his body, the church, that's not possible. You cannot be dismembered from his body. But what is possible is to lose the joy of that fellowship. First John 1 John 1.4, these things I write unto you that your joy may be full. Positional fellowship is permanent, but the joy can come and go. Have you noticed that? <laughs> when we grieve the Spirit or when we quench the Spirit, oops, there goes the joy of our positional fellowship. The early believers were one in positional fellowship and they were experiencing the joy Of that fellowship. That oneness. Everything they did together. Was done. If you look at verse 46. With gladness. And singleness of heart. Now wouldn't that be refreshing. We hear so much about divisions. Even within local assemblies. But they did everything together. I mean they were together. Continuously. And they were glad about it. And they had the single heart. Their positional fellowship. You see was also experiential fellowship. Now, I'm sure, as I've heard many times, you've you've heard people say, well, I love the Lord. I love the Lord, but I just really don't care to have anything to do with the church. Well, that kind of attitude is completely unbiblical and contradictory to a life surrendered to the one they claim to know and love. You know, in the mind of God, In the mind of God, there is no difference between the invisible, mystical, spiritual, corporate body of Christ, which is what we call the church, meaning the corporate church. There's no difference in his mind between the church universal and the visible local church of believers. How can I say that so dogmatically? Well, because of the fact that the Holy Spirit uses one word for both, and that word is ecclesia, that's the Greek word for church. It means called out ones. It's the same word that is used in the New Testament to refer to both the spiritually, spiritual reality of all born-again believers in the church universal and to local assemblies of smaller groups of believers, like your little church and my little church, etc. Same word for both. Why? Because to God, they're the same thing. There's no provision in the word of God for a dichotomy between being a Christian and being part of a Christian fellowship, a local assembly of believers. Because the spirit-filled early believers were joyfully in partnership with the Lord, they had a right vertical relationship with the Lord. Their instinctive uh, gravitation was therefore to one another. If you have a right relationship with the Lord, you instinctively want to be horizontally related to all the Lord's people. That just comes with the Holy Spirit. And the one yeah, the one in pro, uh, providing that instinct is the Spirit. This is the one of the ways that we know we're genuinely saved. Love of the brethren. That's how you can test if you really are saved. 1 John 3:13, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren and the sisteren, or however you would pronounce it. <laughs> and you, you know what, though? You cannot force this on somebody. If you have an unsaved spouse, or an unsaved child, unsaved parent, you cannot force it on somebody. It's not something that can be imposed on people. It can't, you cannot coerce it. You cannot govern it. Spirit-filled believers just want to be with other believers. And the topics of their conversation are always going to gravitate to Christ and to his word and his works. That's why I love our group time. That's why I look forward to leadership meetings because we just always naturally gravitate. You can't get that out in the world. You want to talk to people in the world about Jesus? Bye-bye. Quickly. But, you know, we just want to talk. Have you ever been to churches where you go to a Sunday school class and all they talk about is sports, politics, uh, whatever? You know, and maybe the last few minutes they open up the Bible and read a passage or two? Get out of that kind of church, okay? You don't don't need to be there. Spirit-filled people want to talk about the Lord Jesus So then, fellowship of these people was both positional and experiential, and they maintained the symbol of that fellowship in the breaking of bread, which was what? Their observance of the Lord's table or communion. Why did participation in the Lord's table symbolize their fellowship? And for that matter, why does it yet symbolize fellowship with one another and our fellowship with all Christians of all generations And all all across the country, all across the world. Why does it symbolize our fellowship? Well, Paul tells us that it shows forth that we have all partaken of one loaf. And that loaf is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus that we are one body. He's the head, we're the body. That fellowship created by the unity of the spirit is only because of the shed blood symbolized by the cup, and the broken body, symbolized by the bread of Christ on the cross. The two ordinances that have been given to the church are what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. Baptism is the believer's way to publicly, now remember I told you that baptism was always public. It was always outside in a river or pond or something, a lake. Believer's baptism is the way for the believer to publicly show our death with Christ. You know, we identify, we go down into the waters of baptism. That's showing our death with him. We're to die to self, right? In communion, we privately, because communion is only for believers. If you're not a believer, you shouldn't participate in the Lord's table. Remember, he dismissed Judas before they had the Lord's Supper. Communion is when we privately, with other believers, show his death for us. Baptism, our death with him. Communion, his death for us. All Christians have common ground at the foot of the cross, don't we? We are all sinners saved by God's grace there at Calvary. It's the cross that makes our fellowship with God and with other believers possible. And automatic. It's the cross that brought reconciliation. First and foremost, between God and man. And secondly, between Jew and Gentile, you know, bond or free, between all men who believe in him. The cross, which interestingly is an instrument of death, cruel, cruel death. The the worst kind of death anybody could ever suffer. It's an instrument of cruel death, isn't it? And yet it has become the symbol of our unity. Beauty out of ashes. (laughs) So every time we celebrate communion, we are acknowledging that the cross is the cause, the reason for our unity. In wanting to make sure that we maintain the beauty of that unity and never forget it, the Lord told his followers to partake of the cup and the bread. From the very earliest days of the church, the breaking of the bread. Now, they began by doing it daily. They did it every day. It got corrupted, so then Paul told them not to do that so often. But they did it. You know how they participated in the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper? Joyously. Joy. It was a great celebration. Sometime when we do it, you know, we're all solemn faces and wonders. I have to examine myself, you know, and we just, <laughs> but they celebrated it joyously. They could not look at the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross without celebrating those were, That one word, te telestai, which was spoken by the Lord, remember, at the end of his six hours of suffering on the cross, and literally means it is finished, it stands finished, and it always will be finished. That word was a marvelous word to these people. It meant that their sins were finally atoned for permanently. How could you not be joyful about that? No more having to slit the throats of lambs. You know, having a little pet lamb in your house for four days and loving on it and then having to kill it. No more of that. They were washed clean by the blood of the lamb. Isn't that something to celebrate? Next time you take communion in your church, will you smile? (laughs) The early believers were also a people who were steadfast in prayer, both individually and united as the body. They understood that this was now their new way to continually keep in touch with the Lord, now that he was no longer physically present with them. He had taught them to pray. He was an example of a prayer warrior. He told them to pray, not only for direction and guidance, but also for the Father's provision, and so that their joy might be full. When we draw nigh unto God, what does he do? He draws nigh unto us. Um... I'll go ahead and do this. In the King James, we don't have the word the in front of prayers, but it's actually in the original Greek manuscripts. So it really should read the prayers. They continued steadfastly in the prayers. Now, Acts 3.1, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, and also... Verse 46, if you look at 246, tells us that it was still their habit, these early believers, it was still their habit to go to the temple to pray. The prayers suggest that these were the prayers of Judaism that had been said probably their entire lives by rote memory. But now they had new joyous meaning for these people. I mean, the Jewish prayers were good. They were always good, good prayers. But now they had full meaning to them when they prayed. You know, sometimes you can just say prayers and you're not even thinking. You just say them. And the Jewish people, you know, they, 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 they do this back and forth when they pray. And they would just say their prayers. But now these Jewish Christians had wonderful, they're saying those prayers. And it's wonderful because they understand them. And some people have criticized the fact that they still went to the temple to pray. Because they said, well, the corrupt uh, Jewish leaders had turned it into a den of thieves. So what are they doing going to the temple? Well, Jesus went to the temple to pray. Even though, you know, the religious rulers had corrupted it. He went there to pray and teach. He called it his father's house. And he called it a house of prayer. These Jewish Christians were really the only people at that time who really understood the significance of Judaism. If anybody had a right to be in the temple. It was those who believed in the one who the temple pointed to all those years. Now, there is going to be a transition between Judaism and Christianity that goes on for a number of chapters in the book of Acts. And, and we'll see that. But for now, these are the only people who are coming to realize all that the sacrifices and the feast days and the offerings and the, and the observances foreshadowed over all the centuries since God had given them to Israel. So they steadfastly continued in the prayers spoken publicly in the temple, and they then participated in private prayers themselves in their houses and in homes where they met and had the the Lord's Supper. So they prayed publicly and they prayed privately. And their private prayers were Christ-centered, new prayers from the heart. All right, divine confirmations, we're going to the second part of our outline, divine confirmations of the spirit-filled early church. For this, we're going to look at the rest of the verses, 43 to 47. It says, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. That word common is koinah comes from the same word, fellowship koinonia. And verse 45, And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. One confirmation of the spirit filling of these people is that fear came upon every soul. You see that in the first verse, uh, verse 43? Now, every soul speaks of unbelievers. How do I know that? Well, because verse 44 then differentiates with those who believe. So every soul is unbelievers. The Greek word for fear that is used there is the word phobos. You've heard of phobia, having a phobia? That's where the word comes from. And it doesn't speak of a terror type of fear. It speaks of reverential type fear. In other words, awe. The early church was an awesome church. (laughs) The people of Jerusalem were very aware of the fact that something supernatural was going on. God was doing something in these followers of the Nazarene. The Jewish people were experiencing something like what Peter felt when he first realized who Jesus was. Remember when Peter fell down before him and he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This newborn body of believers was having a profound impact on those around them who were sensing, like Peter, their own sinfulness. They were looking at those believers and the joy in their faces and their holiness and their love for one another, and they were in awe. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the church today had that kind of effect on the world? Mmm. And we would if we would stop trying to emulate the world. Imitate the world in order to attract the world. What does ecclesia mean? The word for church. What does it mean? Called out ones. We're called out of this world to be witnesses to the world, but not to be like the world. Do you know what attracts the world? Something that is different from it, something that the world cannot copy or duplicate, no matter how much time, how much money, how many resources are thrown at it. When churches try to imitate the world and offer people the same thing that the world offers, except in quote-unquote Christian packaging, the world is not very impressed, because they can do it a whole lot better. They have a lot more money and a lot more resources and energy than we do however what they cannot do better than us the church is to be holy as he is holy holiness will do one of two things it will either attract people or it will repel them because darkness doesn't like light but it will attract some these people in Jerusalem were drawn The Lord added to his church daily. One thing holiness does, though, in the church is it does not keep people indifferent and apathetic. And today, sadly, most of the world is just really apathetic about your little local churches. The infant church, remember, was fresh from the hand of God, and she was holy. She was untouched by wrong. Most churches today, and trust me, I've been to a lot from East Coast to West Coast, most churches today unwisely set their standards very low in order to attract the church instead of setting their standards high to instill the awe of God in people. Also, the reverential awe of the people of Jerusalem was sustained through the early miracles of the apostles, of which Luke tells us were many. The apostles were performing many miracles. We're going to look at one of them next week. It was as though Jesus was back in town. And guess what? He was. He was. He was back in town working through his spiritual body. Now, what was the purpose of the many miraculous works of the apostles? As always, even when the Lord performed miracles, it was to confirm the truth of the word they proclaimed. And what was the word they proclaimed? The gospel message. The Lord was confirming these men as his witnesses through the miracles. It wasn't about the miracles; it was about the message. This was before the New Testament was written. Today, if a messenger comes along and gives you says, this, "I am speaking for God," how do you test what he's saying? Do you say, "Well, you know, handle some snakes for me then, and let me see"? <laughs> no. How do you test the message against the word? This is our standard now. All right, now we come to the most controversial verses of this passage, verses 44 and 45. And the only reason that these verses are controversial is because they are not understood in their historical context. So I want to explain these verses. This is about sharing, you know, selling the possessions and their goods and having all things in common. This early church practice is not a biblical support for either socialism or communism, as is being told today abundantly. It is not a support for redistributionism, socialism. It was an ancient tradition in Israel for sharing of this type to take place when there were Jewish pilgrims from all over the diaspora in Jerusalem for the spring and the fall feasts. Now the spring feast came together and the fall feast came together, so I think a lot of the pilgrims just came, like at Passover and they stayed till Pentecost was over, instead of traveling back home and then coming back again. They just stayed for the 50 days. The permanent residents of the city and the surrounding area would often freely open their homes and offer or share meals with the visitors, even giving them a place to stay. This was just common practice. You got people coming from out of town, open your homes to them. Don't charge them rent. Let them live there, you know, share meals. The last spring feast, Pentecost, there were four spring feasts. The last one is now over, okay? So most of the pilgrims would have returned to their respective homes. However, for the 3,000 that had been added to the church, these devout Jews, most of whom came from foreign lands... It was imperative that they remain in Jerusalem. Why? Why? They needed to be discipled. The sharing of goods is the explanation for how these people could remain in Jerusalem, how they can continue away from their homes and their jobs over a period of time and yet be preoccupied with the things of the Lord. This was a unique situation. An infant church of 3,000 new believers in Jesus needed to be fed with the milk of the wonderful works of God in Christ. They needed to learn all that they could from the apostles and from the other members of the 120. They needed to learn everything they could about the Lord so that they could then return to their own lands and be ready to teach others and to evangelize, do the work of devout Jewish Christian evangelists. You know, in the end times, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish Christian evangelists to the Gentile nations. It's like, you know, a repeat at the end, in the beginning. Here's the beginning. Their time in Jerusalem, however long it was, was like spiritual boot camp for them. Now, the imperfect tense of the Greek words for selling, when it says they sold their possessions and parted them, that talks about um, a continuous action. Continuous, as every man had need. In other words, the verb sold and parted showed continual activity. So what it means is that people sold and distributed as there was a particular need. It isn't like they had this giant Jewish yard sale. And they just put everything in the yard sale. And the proceeds were put in a big pot. And Peter, you know distributed to every person in equal amounts from that. If that was true, nobody would have houses. They would have all sold their houses, and yet it tells us they met from house to house. What it does mean is the verbs tell us that if there was a particular need, they would sell, somebody would sell something and then share money. Okay, you get it? And if there was another need, they would sell something else and, and, and give the money. Those, there are those who point to this early church here in Acts, as their attempt to support either socialism or communism. But the flaw in that is that the sharing that went on in the days of the early church was not totalitarian. In other words, it was not made mandatory by government and then enforced on the people against their wills. It was done from love, not by law. It was a movement of spirit-filled compassion, not socially forced compulsion. It was for the purpose of accomplishing God's commission, not an anti-God communism. 3,000 believers, and the number is growing daily, it says, they needed to be discipled. They needed to stay in Jerusalem and be discipled, taught apostolic doctrine. Now, Dr. John Phillips, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Acts, tells this story that I just had to share with you. This is a true story. He wrote about an open-air evangelist back a few years who was being fiercely heckled by a communist, who was gathered around the preacher in this crowd. And this communist loudly was just mocking the preacher. And as he was doing so, it just so happened that a homeless drunk, dressed in rags, staggered over their way and joined the crowd. The communist pointed to the drunk and shouted for all the crowd to hear these words. Given the opportunity, communism would put a new suit on that man. And then he turned to the preacher, and he said, And what does your Christ do for him? And without missing a beat, the old preacher said, Given the opportunity, he would put a new man in that suit. Ha! Yeah. <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> Verse 46, there was one passion among these people in everything they did. Oh, I just, I almost wish I could go back in time and, do, and just, you know, no denominations, no division, no, just all together. Wouldn't it be wonderful to meet every day like this? And just fellowship together and eat together and share homes together. I get so lonely in my little cocoon. <laughs> One passion, everything, that they were studying together, they were fellowshipping together, they were praising God together, they were praying together, they were eating together, they were partaking of the Lord's Supper together, and they were doing it all with gladness and singleness of heart. Their testimony before the common people was very, very attractive. You talk about being salt and light, Whew, they were. And people were drawn to it. Their heartfelt praise of God brought them favor with all the people, it says. I'm sure there was an exception, the religious rulers. But the common people were drawn to this. They had an attractive savor, and it resulted in fruit. Remember the link between the Gospels and the book of Acts? Acts is the continuing work of the Lord by his spirit through his church. And that truth is seen in the last words of Acts chapter 2. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This was the result, this was the fruit of spirit-filled Christians who were walking their talk. We need to walk our talk because the world is looking. And they need to be filled with awe at what they see. You know, I doubt, I seriously doubt, well, I could say with all assurance that since this time, that there has not been one day that has passed since Pentecost that the Lord has not added daily to his church. I would just like to see him adding more daily to his church. Right on time. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father... May it be that your people of this generation could be found walking in joy and peace before you with one accord, with one mind, with one heart, continuing steadfast in, in such great and sacred and loving and holy fellowship with you and with one another, that the effect on the world around us would be that of reverential awe of what to them would so obviously be the supernatural workings of God, of you, of the one we know and serve, the Lord Jesus, and that because of his light shining through us, he would daily add an ever-increasing number of souls to the church in these last days of her age we pray in your name amen